With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio.
Burn Hollywood. Burn Hollywood. Sacred instructions. <laughs> we take them seriously. Burn Hollywood. Burn. Anybody got a bick out there? <laughs> Brother Saeed, welcome back to LIB Radio. Um, you were talking earlier about how the media ever so rapidly latches on to salacious and inconsequential news stories. Uh, Michael Jackson is as relevant to your and my life as is Kobe Bryant, as is uh, so much of the other trash media that they put in our face. Michael Jackson. You know, it's ironic a lot of people don't know is that I think it was a year ago. Yeah, it was last year. Michael Jackson's father and Todd Bridges went to Kinshasa. Look, you know, supposedly to do a movie on uh, some kind of lame movie and stuff like that. And also Michael's father went there to sign Connolly's artist. And... At the same time, they were looking for diamonds. They kind of denied that, but a lot of people also don't know that two, three years earlier, Michael Jackson's father went to Kinshasa looking for diamonds, and the Congolese official was so offended that he came there just for that reason instead of helping out the community. They took him across the river into Raza, the Republic of Congo, telling him he was still in Congo and left him there. So. <laughs> I hear that. And... Um, do they, they, well, they speak French there in Brazzaville also. Yeah, there's ethnic tribes going on there also, and they almost, we actually almost had to fight. We actually fought them during the invasion by the Rwandans under Kabila because uh, there was just, there was uh, instability in Brazzaville. It's named after Pierre Brazza, who was Livingston's, Livingston's family, mm. uh, friend, the explorer. And um, what happened is that Kabila actually sent 300 troops into Brazzaville to, you know, bring peace. And as a result, uh, Brazzaville started firing artillery rounds into Kinshasa while we, was, well, while we were being invaded by the Rwandans and Ugandan armies. So, yeah, mm -hmm. Brazzaville right across the river. When then have, have the animosities from those uh, cross-border assaults, have they faded away? No, they're still there. I mean, you know, we've kind of, quote-unquote, normalized relations with, with them. But, you know, it's, it's um, in a couple of dossiers, it's been stated that the assassinations and plotters of uh, Laurent Kabila, the father, as we call him, fled into Brazzaville. So, you know, there's still that distrust we have for them. And the invasion force that was coming under the uh, guise of the U.N. that was being led by Missouri, but it was actually uh, Missouri and uh, U.S. Marines coming across to, uh, they were stationed actually in Brazzaville, supposedly to come into Kinshasa to evacuate their, their citizens, but actually what the mandate was is that they were going to put Congo under a U.N. Man uh, mandate. So since they were based in Brazzaville, it just added to the, you know, to our, you know, feeling that, you know, Brazzaville is always conspiring against us. Yeah, one would think that um, the mere size of Congo, the complexity of the uh, ethnic uh, makeup of the population, as well as the um, long hostilities that are manifested by so many small arms, it would virtually be impossible for the UN to take a mandate over the Congolese state. by Wamba and Ilunga and take it from there because, you know, you have to understand, people forget there are over 240 languages in Congo. There are so many ethnic groups. And if you look at the history of, of, of the Congolese, we've never committed, except for the Tantanga uh, situation with the Luba, overall, we've never committed wholesale genocide against anybody else. I mean, we had, like, you know, kingdom warfare in the Bakongo area or the Mulenga area back east, something like that. But, you know, to take Congo, think about it. We were colonized by the Belgians. They didn't have that many soldiers in Belgium. They followed the, they followed the, uh, the lessons that the, in, that the English did in India. They had very few troops there, but they had guns, and they also found enough Congolese to betray the Congolese themselves. That has always been the history of Africa. That's the situation of Congo, if you look at what's been going on there. 
you don't have to get the whole population to pacify them. You just get enough of them to, you know, pacify those in power, and the rest is history. Uh, yeah, that's a very serious point. When we're talking about the genocide, the ethnic rivalry that goes on, for, on one hand, it's, it's kind of hard from a person in this country to fathom how these rivalries could escalate into such brutal and vicious violence. Yet then again in this country, we have people who fight over um, football and or basketball teams. Exactly. It's about, you know, it's about turf. It's about respect. But it's a little different in uh, the African society, to a certain, I'll say to a different degree. What you have here, and this again, this is my opinion, what you have, from what I see here, you know, you know, people are dying over sneakers, jackets, and things like that because they don't respect each other. They won't go, you know, when the riots happened with Rodney King and those other riots, they weren't, you know, setting things on fire in Bel Air or Beverly Hills because I guess they knew what time it would be if they went up there with the police. They were destroying their own communities. But if you turn on the TV and all we're doing, you know, all black men are doing is making fun of black women, all black women are doing is, is, dis is disrespecting black men. I'm not saying all the images are doing that, but if you see enough of those images, then you're, in you're inundating your children and your own psyche, even as an adult, of the lack of respect for each other. What happens in Africa, we'll say, for example, Congo is the same thing. You have these guys, you have these guys who remember what it was like, you know, under the Belgians. And you also have these guys who want to be something. They're nothing. They want to be something. So here comes some guy from Kagami's military in Kigali. He comes into, we'll say, uh, Ituru and says, look, we'll back you up, you know, so, we, so you can take power in this region. But the deal is that you have to let us exploit this area. We don't care how you take power. Just let us exploit this area. So now you got this guy like Thomas Lubanga standing there saying, hmm, now, I'm nothing today with no job, whatever, or I could be like a little mini warlord in this area. What am I going to do? Let's see. I got no money, or I can get like two tons of gold and coal tan a month and make a lot of money off that. They're going to betray their people. So all you have to do is get one. And, of course, people like him have people like him around him. So it's easy for him to amass a small little militia with high-tech weapons, go into a village where there are no weapons, and take power, kill the men, rape the women, burn the children. Where are the weapons coming from? They're coming from Uganda, and they're coming from Rwanda, and South Africa is selling weapons to Rwanda, and it's getting so bad the U.N. is thinking about putting an arms embargo on Rwanda. Kigali, what happens is that when the Rwandans and Ugandan armies were in eastern Congo, what they did was they fomented this ethnic strike. The Hema and the Lendu, yes, they had ethnic strike going back for years, but instead of the press saying, you know, hey, this thing is being fueled by the Ugandan and Rwandan government, they're trying to say, well, for centuries they've been fighting over the cattle and the land. That's not the case. What happened is that when the, Rwand when the Ugandans were backing the MLC, uh, it was uh, under John Pierre Bemba, the Rwandans were backing RCD Goma, which is under Azirius, uh, Rabala, and Onasumba. What happened when they pulled out and RCD and MLC became part of the transition, the Ugandan government and the Rwandan government had their own financial interests in Eastern Congo that they had to protect. They couldn't defeat the Mai Mai because they knew what time it was. They really tried to invade Mai Mai territory, and we'll explain about that later on. So what they did was they created these little proxy armies, Uganda with the Hema, because most of any is a Hema. It's part, I believe he's part Hema, and he's Tutsi on his back. But um, what happened is that they decided to back the Hema. The Rwanda decided to back the Lema. So, the, you know, the Lendu, I'm sorry. So they armed each group, and they had them fight each other to maintain their financial interest in the area. So it's like me coming to L.A., arming the Crips, you arm the Bloods, and we're using them to fight our war as we collect the money. That's the situation going on in Eastern Congo. That's where the weapons are coming from. Do the do you believe or can you imagine that the soldiers 
have any sort of real per, uh, comprehension of what is going on, or are these uh, young men, just like maybe in the Western military, young men who really haven't had a chance to have any type of uh, political, ideological maturity that are just uh, thrust into a situation, given a basic training, and then sent out there and told where to go to kill? Well, that's the situation you have. It's young men because 60% of, the, of these militias are child soldiers. You're talking people that are 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. They, wait a minute, wait a minute. What? How, what percentage of these soldiers are children? If you look at that, if they, if you look at that rebel force in, in, in Liberia or Cote d'Ivoire or what have you, or mm -hmm. Sierra Leone, a high percentage are children soldiers. They're not adults. That's right. Yeah, so the Congolese situation, in that those militias, 60% of them are children, the oldest... The average age is about 11 to 12 years old. That's right. Yes. And when you're talking, uh, you talked about on the earlier program, the rate of death in Congo over the past two years has... Yeah, it, it was a 911 every day. We were losing 3,000 people a day. 3,000 human beings. Was this only um, soldier-age men that were being killed? Everybody. It was women, children, men, everybody. It was mostly the population. The military conflict, the way the Rwandan army fights is that they were back in the RCD, you know, rally for Democratic Congo, ironically, though they're killing people. They would arm them and fund them and send them into battle while the Rwandan um, superiors, you know, officers would stay in the hills with their binoculars and direct traffic. The pe those millions of deaths were, pe were innocent civilians. It wasn't a high rate of soldiers dying. It was innocent civilians, women, men, children, everything. Yeah. Uh, Every day for five years. At one point, we were losing 100,000 people a month. Mm. And if I can tell you, if I can read something to your readers, I can give an idea how big that is. Please uh, do so. All right. We have the flag for the memorial that we um, actually circulate, and it has this information on it. This is actually something I had written. Imagine your reaction if tomorrow you saw in the news that over the last five years, the entire population of the following U.S. cities, polling 5.4 million, have been killed. Boston, Massachusetts. Washington, D.C., Denver, Colorado, Kansas City, San Francisco, Atlanta, Las Vegas, Long Beach, Sacramento, Oakland, and Miami would not exist. And, of course, uh, then when we talk about the proportion of the population, the relative size of the United States is probably has six times the population of the Congo. Yeah, Congo is one-fifth the size of the United States in terms of population. We've had the highest mortality rate since World War II anywhere in the world. So if you think about it again for the listeners, for those people out there right now, Boston, Washington, D.C., Denver, Kansas City, San Francisco, Atlanta, Las Vegas, Long Beach, Sacramento, Oakland, and Miami, all those cities over five years would no longer exist. And the total of those five cities comes out to 5.4 million. We lost 5.5 million. So we could probably squeeze, you know, maybe, you know, uh, I don't know, Dallas in there somewhere. And That's the people we have lost. Now, you look at the American response to losing just 3,000 people, not just, but losing 3,000 of their citizens. Imagine how we feel. And there's no one lining up to, you know, no, there's no one lining up in Washington to support us in front of our embassy. Why do you think that the Western governments and the Western media is uh, not uh, exposing the story? I mean, here, you and I are talking on a day when uh, Michael Jackson's uh, exploits with young boys, which everyone has known about for some time, have exploded, taken central stage in national media, while the, the, uh, there are four major stories going on today 
that are not being covered because of Michael Jackson. Now, of these major stories, you have a um, free trade of the Americas agreement. They're attempting to negotiate in Miami, and uh, tens of thousands of people have uh, been attempting to get down there so they could shut down these type of events. Exactly. Uh, Accident Bush, a.k.a. Duh, is traveling to England and being greeted by the most vocal demonstration of hostility towards uh, U.S. president in history. Uh-huh. Uh, we have an, another major story that's come out that was in uh, today's media talking about the unemployment figures that were showing this turnaround in the economy that George Bush is, at, or duh, I should say, has been attributing to his uh, tax rebate, uh-huh. that the economic uh, figures, the unemployment figures, were fudged, were faked. Exactly. And another major story is the ongoing scandal in the um, monetary and securities uh, industries in this country with the theft, the wholesale theft of mutual funds, etc. So. Exactly. The reason why you see that is because Western civilization is making money hand over fist in Congo and places like Congo, Cote d'Ivoire, in Sierra Leone. That's why you don't, see, you know, that's why you're not going to see Western, you know, Western. Um, Powell talking about it, and the Western media, unfortunately, when you saw this globalization of media outlets, a lot of them were being taken over by, you know, conglomerates, you know, the NBC and things like that. They, those guys that sit on their boards are, part, are like, you know, members of these governments or parliaments, whatever. So they, make, they definitely want to make sure no one knows what's going on in Congo and those places. And unfortunately, you know, our own people don't care. You know, our brothers and sisters, we have enough, and again, not all. But we have enough of our brothers and sisters that just don't really care. They think, you know, they're, as far as they're concerned, they're worried about what's going on in their own neighborhood, which I can respect and understand. But, you know, how can you build a bridge with people when you finally come to our country and you, we tell you we lost a million people and we ask you how come you didn't help us, what can you say? Because, you know, you had a problem because, you know, you, you were focusing about Michael Jackson and Kobe Bryant or whatever when your own people here are dying. So what's happening is that the people over here need to know what's going on and need to find out. But at the same time, our own Congolese, you know, they can't be, you know, escaping blame also. There's just too much division in the community. There's too much division in the diaspora. We have to, we have to, you know, speak for our people that can't speak. That's our responsibility. It's not to say neglect your family. It's not to say neglect your children. It's not. But if you can just, if you can pick up a pen, pencil, lipstick, chalk, mascara, write something on a napkin and stick it to a window at an at a, at a embassy or speak some more, give out a flyer, anything small, anything to advocate for your fellow Congolese that cannot speak for themselves, that's our responsibility. We, not enough of us are doing that. We, enough of us out there are really fighting for the Congo, but we, if we can unify the way we do for a party in terms of advocating for Congo, no one's going to invade us, period. That's right. That's right. We have to bring a, a certain uh, sophisticated uh, or a passionate and sophistication to our organization and the resetting of priorities. And, you know, as a person of African descent living in this country and doing what I can do to try and overcome the centuries-long handicap, sometimes it does seem rather overwhelming. But the thing about it is, Brother Saeed, is that in the struggle, there is a great deal of joy and satisfaction just in the act of meeting with people, organizing, struggling, uh, pooling resources, investing in something, and actually being able to see some tangibility come out of that investment of time and or money. Exactly, and that's the thing people have to understand. I'm sure, and I'll probably repeat this again on Saturday, I'm sure back in 1958 
there was someone in Ghana saying the British are never going to leave. I know this, there was somebody in 1974 in Angola saying the Portuguese will never leave. I know there's a Congolese somewhere in 1959 saying the Belgians will never leave. They'll be here forever. But, you know, the pe the, enough people in 1959 lived until 1961 to see them leave and, and see that their country is independent. And that's what people have to understand with the struggle. People have this perception that the struggle is about struggling with nothing. Your house is empty. You got no money. You're broke. You got nothing. No, the struggle is fighting to make a difference. What kind of country are you, what kind of country, what kind of society are you going to leave for your children? You know, do we, do we want our colonies' children that are born here to be stuck here? What if they want to go home? What country are we leaving for them? That's what we have to do. If you look at the situation back in the 60s, you know, I have a lot of affinity for that period because I, I, the family structure was there. You know, black men were doing their thing. Black women were doing their thing. They were at the forefront. They were sitting at the back of the bus. They were up there fighting just as hard as the men, if not more so because they had to worry about their children's lives. Now you don't really see that. You know, so one component we're going to talk about at the, at the memorial is the, the position and the impact of the war on women. But we're not just going to talk about women as though they're, like, you know, victimhood. We're also going to take a moment to highlight, you know, uh, Madam Odile Manungo is going to talk about this. We're going to highlight their position in society, their strength, because women are the foundation of society. No women, no Brother Keedy, no Saeed, no George Bush, no nothing. So we have to advocate and put them, put them at the forefront of the struggle and make them as an active 50-50 participant in the success of the struggle and elevate them as other civilizations and other societies do their women. We can't have black women at the bottom of the pit. How many people of Congolese descent would you estimate that uh, could uh, that one would encounter here in a city like Metropolitan Los Angeles? Uh, I think a little over 2,000. I believe that's what the number is right now, about 2,500. And uh, how organized is this group? It could be there's, it, there's room for improvement. I'll put it like that. Uh, there's definitely room for improvement. A lot of our situations that you see on a large scale in Congo uh, exist here on a micro level. But that's, a, that's as in all communities. You know, when you have people from different areas, different provinces, different linguistics, different backgrounds, you know, well, I don't like that person because that person's a Luba. You know how the Lubas are. Well, I don't like that person because they're from Ecuador, and that's where Mobutu was from. We have those divisions as you have in your own community. So, you know, as you, as you struggle and work hard with your brothers and sisters, to, you know, to bring us all together, we're doing the same thing. You know, our situation is a little different because, you know, we're literally in a foreign environment, literally. You know, so we're very cut off from our home. So when we, when we bring a lot of our elders here, a lot of them want to go back because they feel just isolated here. But kind of, you know, rounding it back to what you had asked, it could, there's room for improvement. There definitely is room for a lot of improvement, and I would definitely like to see that. A lot of us would like to see that. But, again, it's, it's nothing unique to our community. It exists in the Latino community. It exists in the Armenian community. It exists in the Mexican community. We're not one block of Congolese. Once we can get beyond the differences and realize that, a united front benefits Congo and not just worry about and not be concerned about personal interests and personal beliefs and personal positions within the community, then we will really see something going on. You know, uh, what's his name? Mayor Han will actually come down to an association and come talk to us because they're going to try to get our vote. But they don't do that because we're not unified to make our vote count. Yes, 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 I do agree. There are a, uh, There is a group of people there in the Congo that have long charmed the hearts of the entire world, uh, people said to be at the orig origin of human civilization, the uh, Twa, the yeah. misnomer, the so-called pygmy. Right. Um, give us your reflections on this group of people. Where is their position in the Congolese society 
I've heard recent stories that they are themselves under terrible assault and genocide right now. Yeah, they are. I mean, their position in society at this present is under the foot of Jean-Pierre Bemba because a lot of them were in the forest area of where his movement, the MLC, were. I mean, he was trying to host, you want to talk about wholesale slaughter of an ethnic group. He just, I mean, he looked at them as nothing but, you know, an asterisk on a population chart. That's how he looked at them. The Twa, I mean, they're also, there's, there's Twa's in Burundi, there's Twa's in Rwanda. They suffered to the genocide also. They have such a rich history. I mean, one of the songs that uh, Moana Kenya had picked out is actually a song from the, uh, the Pygmy folklore. You know, I can't remember exactly what the name is. They have a rich history. They have an association I know in D.C., and there's an association of them also in Congolese, and they network with the, with the Twa that are in Burundi and the neighboring countries. They go way back. They have pride. They don't want to assimilate with anybody. They want to retain their culture. They want to retain their heritage. They want to retain their language. They're pretty much nationalistic, borderline, radical Congolese because they either feel they feel they either Congolese or nothing. They don't want to assimilate any other culture unless it benefits their culture. And I have a lot of respect for them. And I wish their plight was you know was brought more to the forefront instead of people saying, oh, it's just quote unquote pygmies running around and you know playing with Mufasa. That's that's not right. That's a misnomer. And uh, what would you estimate their population to be? It all depends because again the ethnic structure in our country really breaks down into into you know different subgroups what have you. You may have the Bantu as the Europeans like to say broken down to the Hutu. Then you have the Anamango. I really couldn't say. I really couldn't say. I know there's a couple. Of, I know there's a couple hundred thousand there. But I know one of their languages, which I can't pronounce, became extinct four years ago when the last member of one of the Trois subgroups died. But I know there's a couple of hundred thousand there. But they are suffering because since they're in the wooded area, they're at the mercy of the Western um, corporations that are there for the forest. So they are kind of, you know, fighting their own internal war within their own region. Do you see them in Kinshasa? They're there. Actually, there was a delegation that visited uh, the transitional president, Joseph Kabila, two weeks ago. They came to highlight the situation that's in their province. And he gave my audience, and I'm not sure exact, I wasn't privy to the exact dialogue, but yes, there's a lot of them there, and they're, it's, they're really mobilized. As you see, in any of the ends around the country, they are really mobilized. They have an association. There's video of them walking down the street, and people look at, looking at them saying, okay, you know, here are the twas, whatever. But they walk with such a pride, you can't help but notice them. So yes, there is someone in Kinshasa, and again, there was a delegation, and they're to return to uh, Kinshasa again sometime next week, being that the transitional president, Joseph Kabila, was traveling abroad. Your reflections on Kabila? Which one? Uh, Joseph. What about him? Um, your, reflection, <laughs> your reflections on his uh, competence, his role in uh, taking over from uh, his father, who was assassinated. Well, I think the whole situation for me is, you know, his background is still murky, and the way he came to power, I think, is, was very unfair. And I think, you know, yes, people will say he's bringing... My personal opinion is that, yes, the killing has slowed down, but it hasn't stopped. I mean, for some reason, we're normalizing relations with, with the Uganda government. After they, helped, after they helped kill so many millions of us. And I think there's too much, I'm not privy to the internal structure or situation he's in right now, but overall, yes, he has able, he's allowed to slow the killing because he's implemented, you know, the Lusaka Accords and the uh, inter-Congolese dialogue that took place in South Africa. But beyond that, he hasn't really addressed anything that's going to prevent another genocide, another invasion from happening in Congo anytime soon. Nothing. The military, you know, is, has incorporated the rebels. Most of those rebels, for example, from the RTD, they were Rwandans of Tutsi extract from Rwanda in the Congolese army. 
So there are situations that if they're not resolved quickly, it's going to explode into, into a situation scenario much worse than what we just came out of. So we'll see what happens in 2005 because that's when we're supposed to have the elections. Right now he's still deciding whether he's going to run. But, you know, he's, he's, he's found the peace accord, which has allowed a lot of money to come into Congo. Whether that money is going to benefit the actual Congolese, which I doubt because it's coming from the IMF and World Bank, is another matter altogether. But right now he has slowed down the killing and he's opened the door for more investments to come into Congo. I'll give him that right there. We are at the bottom of the hour. We're going to take another short break. We've got a lot more to go with our conversation with our brother this evening. We're talking about the Congo. We're talking about an upcoming event this Saturday, November 22nd. It's taking place here in Metropolitan Los Angeles, the Congolese Genocide Memorial. We're going to give our listeners that information after we return from this short musical break. You are tuned in to the LIB Radio Network. Be right back with you. Identity of an African. 
And if you come from Kinshasa, you are an African. If you come from Inglewood, you are an African. If you come from, no matter where you come from, if you are a black man, if you are a black woman, you are an African. From the great Peter Tosh, um, one of the world's greatest revolutionary musicians of recent generation, and one who's now become an ancestor. And we here at LIB Radio, we're, we always honor our great musical uh, legacy to the best of our abilities by playing this fantastic music. Brother Saeed, I know you know Peter Tosh is a very serious musician. Ah, Red X, Red X. <laughs> That's right. And uh, we'll do everything we can to keep these things alive. We're talking about the Congolese Genocide Memorial coming up this weekend, taking place Saturday, November 22nd. Once again, for those listeners who might just be tuning in late or maybe didn't have a pen and paper earlier when you gave out the information, can you share that once again, Brother uh, Saeed? Uh, definitely. The, the, the Congolese Genocide Memorial will be taking place at the Christ Citadel International Church Hall. That's uh, under Pastor Kosa's uh, direction. It will be at 1122 South La Cienega Boulevard, which is north of Pico, this Saturday, November 22nd from 12 p.m. to 2 p.m. exactly. All right. We've had an email, a couple of emails that are coming I'd like to share with you, Brother Saeed. I'm here with you. First one uh, comes to us from Brother Avery in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. Phoenix. Hotep Kitty. This is Brother Avery in Phoenix with questions for the guests from the Congo. Question number one. What was the CIA role in Lumumba's death and Mobutu's role with the CIA during and after the killing of Patrice Lumumba? Uh, no, that's, that's very simple. Um, Mobutu needed to get um, Lumumba from the area where he was captured down to the Katangas where he ended up dying, and the CIA helped get him there. That's basically what the role was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When we talk about the evolution of Joseph uh, Mobutu, we, uh, if, if you look at the evolution of this character, do you think all along that he had ambitions of being uh, another King Leopold, another dictator, or was he a person who maybe was just like picked out of a line, 1-800-PICK-A-N-WORD, <laughs> picked out of a line, and foreigners who had the power to manipulate the circumstances says, we pick you to be the leader, and that Mupu to eventually then grew into this role? Yeah, I, I believe it was a combination of both. I feel that, you know, deep down, because a lot of people forget that he was actually Lumumba, Patrice Lumumba's uh, personal secretary. He was taking dictation. A lot of people don't really know about that, about uh, Mobutu. So I believe on one side, eventually, you know, he saw the power that, was, that, that Lumumba was getting and Shombe was getting and things like that. And I think on the other side, you know, people recognized the ambitions that Mobutu had. Had Lumumba not been such a perceived threat to people, he actually would have lived, I, I believe, or he would have made it to exile to Ghana or someplace like that. So once it was demonstrated to, uh, to the, the, we'll say the CIA or the Western powers or the, the powers that be behind the curtains, once it was demonstrated that Mobutu had some kind of ambition, you know, to power, the decision was, you know what, listen, let's get him, let's get him, let's get Shombe, let's get uh, Kata, and let's get uh, Munonga and those guys to turn against Lumumba. So they did that. But behind the scenes, Mobutu was making his own power plays within the military. So he took the disarray that came after the assassination of Lumumba to do a bloodless coup and take power for himself, which, you know, forced Kata to go into exile or was that Shombe. To go into exile and the other guys died, you know, years later. So again, it comes back. It was a little bit of both. Mobutu was power hungry. People and the, the powers that be saw the power of thirst in him and fed him. I'm going to return to the subject of Mobutu, but let's get the second question from Brother Hebrew Yen. Question number two 
is the South Africans and other white capitalists buying up all the resources, such as the uh, material resources, the uranium, or the uh, cobalt, the metal that makes cell phones and diamonds, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. Yes, they are. And I'll repeat it. Yes, they are. Quote, double underlined italics in bold 48 Palantino font. The South Africans, let me, let's explain this. When the, when the Uganda and Rwandan army was invading Congo, literally, there was an arms embargo on Rwanda. South Africa was still selling weapons to Rwanda, and they knew Rwanda was using those weapons on us because they had their own deals. De Ber De Berg had their deals with the Rwandans also when they came into Congo. What a lot of people don't know is that the SADC, the, South, the Southern African Development Corporation, something like that, you know, kind of like a lame duck NATO for Africa or something like that. Mm. What happened is that they all got together. Kabila, you know, uh, Laurent Kabila, the father, got all the guys together in, in a council meeting. And he said, look, I'm being invaded. I need help. We, you guys got to come help us. We're part of the core. We're part of the organization. All the people voted to help Laurent Kabila except Nelson Mandela, who was at that time president of South Africa. There's been a long animosity between the Congolese and, and uh, Mandela particularly. The South Africans do not want to see a strong Congo. And I repeat that. They do not, along with a couple of other countries, want to see a strong Congo. They want to be the power broker in sub-Saharan Africa. There's, it's not a coincidence that right after the inter-Congolese dialogue took place in Sun City in South Africa, because we were supposed to do it in Ethiopia, but they wanted a million dollars up front because they didn't think the factions that was going to come for the conference were going to pay. We then left Ethiopia and went to Botswana, but then a lot of the rebel leaders thought Botswana was like Las Vegas, and they were disappointed they didn't want to stay there. And that's exactly what they had said. South Africa under Mbeki said, you know what, we'll pay for it. Come help, you know, we'll take care of it. But you know who has the gold, you know, lays the rules down. So what happened after the ICD, as it's Congolese call it, after that whole power-sharing transitional government was worked out, a couple weeks later, South Africa announced that they had a deal with the, with the government in Kinshasa to have a co-partnership with the Inga Dam that's in Kinshasa. That dam is on the Congo River. That dam can power pretty much the entire sub-Saharan continent below Congo. That's how powerful it is. How is it that the South Africans automatically got a deal that quick? The South Africans are looking out for their own interests. Not the people. I'm talking about the government. Because, again, when Kabila was coming on, was closing it on Mobutu, it was Mandela that told Mobutu, you need to surrender to this guy or I'm going to use all my West, my, power, my clout in the Western government to bring you down. Period. Surrender and give power to Kabila. Mobutu refused, but then he was so weak he had to acquiesce to that deal. But Mobutu told Laurent Kabila, he goes, the guns that, he used, that you are using to get rid of me are one day going to be turned on you. Now, after the whole thing went down with, with Laurent Kabila, he took power, Mandela visited Congo to try to make peace with Mandela and try to get, to try to get in good grace with Congo. It didn't really work. And in fact, Mandela turned his back on Congo again because he said, you know what, I'm not going to get involved in that Congolese crisis. I'm going to force a peace deal in Burundi. And ever since he tried to force that peace deal, I think since 99, it's been failing. People, you know, 200,000 people have, been, have died in the last 10 years. So South Africa is not about being a white capitalist. It's about business. South Africa wants to be the power in sub-Saharan Africa. They do not want to see a strong Congo. That's why it was their idea to have a transitional government of two years where the four, vice, the four rebel leaders will become vice presidents. Now, you have to ask yourself, how can they put that deal on the Congolese, yet after the fall of apartheid, the South Africans, you know, they didn't make the clerk foreign minister. 
the ANC didn't give both their position to government, why are they going to insist that kind of deal with us? Because they are hoping that there will be an implosion in the transitional government and war will break out again so the South African government can make more money in eastern Congo. Wow. Yeah, and you're making it so, so clear. I mean, I try and stay up on these studies. Uh, you know, if you went to the average African within America and asked them what does SADC stand for, uh, they'd have no clue whatsoever. And uh, you make it so very clear. Um, uh, perhaps we're going to have to do what we can to uh, get you into Parliament or some other position. <laughs> there may, may be a cabinet ministerial post or something. <laughs> and, of course, uh, once we can assist you to get in there, I think maybe it's an even greater likelihood that we will ourselves now find a, a way that we, coming home to Africa, can now find our an inside track to be able to get our enterprises stored there in South Africa to replace those enterprises that service the Western powers. Well, people need to know that, you know, and again, I'm not going to say it's the whole government because the consulate, I believe her name is Sharma, she's leaving now, and the consulate in South Africa, she's an outstanding lady, outstanding. She, she's always been there for us, you know, the Connelly's community. She wants to be at the memorial, but she, I think her uh, departure ceremony is Saturday. So being that she can't be there, she's going to write a letter of support that we're going to read on her behalf. So when we say it's the governments of these particular countries, we're not saying it's everybody. You know, if we do that, we're no better than our enemies. So I want to illustrate, for example, the South African consulate, particularly Ambassador, I believe her name is Ambassador Sharma, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, is departing, but she's, she's been very supportive of the genocide memorial coming up. That's great. That's absolutely great. We've got another email I'm going to share with you. This is from our brother Shabaka, Taiwo Akpan, who's in Chesapeake, Virginia. G-A. Uh-oh. That's right. He says, greetings, brothers. It is wonderful to be able to be a part of this beautiful program. Just wanted to show some black love to you, your guests, and all the LIB family. Just a little shout-out from Brother Shabaka. Ah, I appreciate it. You know, much love to the people down in VA. I have a cousin out there, Dita Kasui, out in Virginia, and Kabongo, uh, we call him Coco. So the people in VA, I always get love when I go out there. I always get love. And there is a substantial population of... Uh, Immigrants from uh, Central Africa, they're in the D.C. metropolitan area. There's a whole lot of them. That's where the missionaries were initially, but there's a lot of us. D.C., North Carolina, Virginia, oh, there's a lot of us out there. Okay, okay. I wasn't even aware of the uh, connection to North Carolina, but I know in the D.C. area you go there and see very large um, Senegalese, Ethiopian, Nigerian groups. Mm. And uh, I, I do know for a fact, yeah, a, a significant population of Congolese there also. Oh, it's a big population. I mean, it's, it's huge. And where can you hear Congolese music within this country? Anywhere. Anywhere they play world music, as they call it, you're going to hear some Congolese music. You'll uh -huh. go to a, a party of another African country, you're going to hear Congolese music. Uh-huh. Um, uh, who are some of the top bands? Is Papa Wimba, is he Congolese? Yeah, he's, he's Congolese, Kofi, Olamide, uh, JP and Piana, Wenga, Musica. Well, there's about four of them now. They keep breaking up. Uh, you have the classics like, you know, Rocha Roll, Yafiko. Okay. I mean, yeah, Zap Mama. You know, she's Congolese also. Okay, yeah, yeah. In fact, they got some Zap Mama on the desk. I was uh -oh. going to be playing right after the program. Uh oh Bring me a copy. Can we say that on air? <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I was about to ask you, uh, maybe we could do a wonderful cultural exchange. It's not about um, burning copies, it's cultural exchange. Cultural exchange, that's right, yeah. I, I, want, I, want, I want to experience other cultures. We have uh, uh, Shabano Kadima in Boston. He's stateside now. You know, he's, a, he's awesome. He's an awesome artist. Yeah, we're everywhere. We're, we're, we 
influenced a lot of music. We're surrounded by nine countries. We have a big influence on other people's music. And, you know, uh, the other way around, also, they influence our music. And but if you listen to it, we have a lot of Afro-Cuban influence from back in the 60s. So if you go to Cuba, you're going to see a lot of music there and a lot of their music in our culture. Yeah, you go to... I, I was always... I was surprised when I was listening to... Um, Rumba music from uh, the Congo. It, oh. It's got to be the sexiest music on the planet. We can't help ourselves sometimes. Sometimes we're just sec- too sexy for ourselves. Hey, I ain't mad at you. Somebody got to <laughs> keep. Somebody got to keep the community full of babies. We try. We try. You know, you can't rely on the African American to do that. Hey, man, you know what Congolese? We, you know, we can't help ourselves sometimes. We just do. What we can't. Now you're not married. Nah, I'm not married. You have never been married. Nah, I've never been married. Uh, are you going One to? Day. Are you going to pick a bride from the United States, or are you going to go um, closer to your own cultural uh, roots? Uh, I stay close to my roots. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I stay close to my roots. There's some things you can learn, but there's some things things there's some things you can learn and teach your children, but there are certain things that you 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 have lived and can pass on to your children. There's a big difference. Yeah, ha- I, I take it that you have uh, dated uh, African women born in the United States. No. <laughs> okay, is there any particular reason? Is it is the cultural gap too wide for you? No, it's just, you know, it's my, I'm, I, I, I just, it's not anything against anybody, but, you know, I love my culture, and I think, you know, to retain the culture, it just helps to be involved with someone that's from that culture. There's just certain things, you know, even a man, um, there's certain things that uh, a woman from our culture wouldn't, would, can, in, you know, put in the child in terms of knowledge that the man from that same culture may not be aware of. I mean, my mom, I mean, I've learned so much from her that I don't feel that we would have learned that much had she been from like a different culture somewhere else, whatever. It's not saying anything disparaging to anybody's culture or anything like that, saying mine's better than anyone. But I know for me, it's just that my culture is very important to me because that's how it's brought me up, how it's brought up my family and my immediate relatives. And I like to pass on that knowledge of self and, you know, and, and belief and structure to my child so that when I'm gone, you know, I'll, you know, me and that child's mother will still live on through our child. Mm-hmm. Another email has come in. Uh, this is a follow-up from Brother Avery. Hotep brother, Kiri, and Congo brother, and again, our brother's name is Brother Saeed. I think tonight's program is in a class by itself, and as one who hates to claim the Afro-American status, nevertheless, he says, why isn't there more Congolese brothers invited on American media to inform us, uninformed brothers and sisters, here in America, the situation there in our motherland? You know, I agree with him. Um, you know, I'm loving this conversation if I were flipping through a, a radio dial or a television and I heard a brother as articulate as yourself from the motherland, I would be absolutely compelled to stop and, and investigate. Well, I appreciate the compliment. I definitely, I definitely do. The thing is that the media just, you know, unfortunately too many people in the media think we're not articulate. I mean, I did a, a panel a couple weeks ago back in October with uh, Brother Folko and Brother Adilar. And, you know, there were, you know, Fofo was bringing the knowledge on the mineral aspect of Congo, and Brother Adelar was, was bringing the knowledge on the economic aspect. But the thing is that when you see the images of Africa, you don't see brothers like Fofo. You don't see brothers like, you know, Adelar. You don't see sisters like Odile or Moadi Mukenge or anything like that. You don't see those images. So if you don't think the images are out there, why are you going to go look for it? So what happens is, is that what we need and what's been happening is that brothers such as yourself are now, you know, we're, we're interacting and you're allowing us a form to bring the knowledge as we can bring because we know our country, so we're going to present our country in a positive way, not in a disparaging way, 
and we're going to present it in a way where you can relate to us and we can figure out a strategy on some kind of alliance to help, to help each other out. Okay, and uh, he has a second question for you. And uh, here, one second, let me just through the email. Second question for the brother from the Congo is in the schools taught in the Congo, is Pan-Africanism as a theory being taught from grade school on up and he asks further, is Marcus Garvey a hero in that part of Africa? Is the Garvey name held in high esteem in the Congo? Oh, definitely. I'll answer the second one first. Oh, definitely. He's, high, he's in high esteem. I mean, him, Amal Cabral, you know, his parents are from uh, Guinea-Bissau, but he fought for the liberation in, in uh, Cabo Verde, Cape Verde, from other people. I mean, you know, at, we're aware of other people that have fought against the colonial power. We're aware of the Marcus Garveys, the Malcolm X's, the Marcus Cabral's, and, and those people, what have you. And the sisters during the struggle, also Angela Davis, you know, for example. So yes, we do hold them in, in much respect because you know we know exactly what it's like to kick a colonial power out. The first aspect, I believe, the question was Pan-Africanism. Um, I think Pan-Africanism is different because, for one thing, educational-wise, our school system is, is totally different from the American system. It's based on the European system. You can go a whole through, you, you can, your, our school system is based on that. You go through a whole year and have one exam at the end of the year. There aren't little exams between the beginning and the end to see how you're progressing. So what happens in that structure, if you don't, if you don't pass, you have to do the whole year over again. So what you find is a lot of Congolese, Africans at large, but we're talking about the Congolese, will come here and they really, they're not really challenged by the American academia in terms of, you know, having to study and things like that in terms of, you know, the difficulty. Because our situation, our structure is a lot more difficult. It's not to say we think it's easy, but ours is a little more, is a little more difficult to uh, transgress. Now, Pan-Africanism, I would say in terms of the way it's presented, it's more of a, okay, Lumumba study under Nkrumah, Nkrumah study under this person, you know, what have you, uh, Mandela back in the day before he changed into what he is now. It's more of we look towards fellow Africans who were part of the struggle and how they all link together to defeat the colonials. If you're talking about the diaspora at large, you know, we will look at, you know, again, Brother Dr. Dr. King, Brother Malcolm X, Sister Angela Davis. But in terms of how Pan-Africanism is presented in black Western civilization versus how it is in Africa, particularly in Congo, it's not the same. The schematic, excuse me, it's the schematic is totally different. Mm-hmm. It's more about being pride, proud in ourselves and finding strength in our culture instead of looking abroad. Uh, that makes a lot of sense, and uh, I couldn't imagine any people who wouldn't want to think that way, or any people that want would want to latch on superficial uh, materialism, would latch on foreign culture, foreign ideology as a point of identity. People bleaching their hair, <laughs> cutting their nose. Yes, people have to understand is that when it comes to the struggle, the struggle is this. Now, five days begin on Saturday, and I'll make it short. This, our elders, the Congolese elders, such as my parents and, uh, and the people that are going to be speaking at the uh, conference, at the, the Genocide Memorial, uh, Dr. Cabongo, my uncle's coming from San Diego. He'll be speaking on Leisha Balela, uh, that advocacy, advocacy group, and Moana Mukengi is going to be speaking on the Luba Genocide. A lot of people understand the Dr. Cabongo, the Aunt Musa, all those people, the Dr. Mukengi, all those people, they didn't have cell phones, DSLs, T1s, computers, two-way pages, instant messaging. Internet, nothing. They still kicked out the Belgians. Kicked them out. And then they tried to bill us for kicking them out for developing Congo. They didn't have what we have now, cordless phones. They kicked out the Belgians. We have all that. 
and we're having, we're having a hard time kicking, kicking out a small country like Rwanda. There's something wrong. There's something wrong. We have to liberate our country. We have a second independence we have to get. If they could do it with just, you know, a phone, and not even a computer, the old typewriter with the ribbon, remember that sheet, the ribbon and the white paper, they, like you made a mistake, you had to start all over again. That's right. If they had that low-level technology and still kicked out the Belgians, still kicked out the French, kicked out the Portuguese, we don't have no excuse now that we can't do it. You know, one of the things about Rwanda is that it's going to have to be uh, dealt with as time passes, is that the fertility rate in Rwanda is uh, one of the highest on the planet. It's, the one, it's one of the highest on the planet, but what people forget is that there was a study in that by 2010-2015, over 60% of, the, of, the, uh, of Congo, and including Uganda, is going to be under the age of 15. So you're talking about 15-year-olds who all they know is that when, they, when you hear the name Rwandan or, or Ugandan, all they know is that that's a, 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 affiliated with genocide. So you're looking at people who are growing up thinking only one thing, revenge. Not all of them. But when they hear a particular name, they're not thinking about a government. They're thinking about a people. And unfortunately, it's going to perpetuate the cycle of destruction in the eastern part. Rwanda, sooner or later, what goes around comes around. It's not the people of Rwanda. It's not the people of Uganda. It's the government. It's Kagame who shot down the plane and started the genocide. It's, it's, it's Museveni who's killing people, who's, you know, who's fighting that madman Kony in northern Uganda. It's he's the guy that invaded us and he killed us also. One day, what goes around comes around. But the cycle of violence has to end. And if Kagame keeps going the route he's, that he's going, he's sowing the seeds for his people's destruction. When he's gone and the people in eastern Congo, those little children grow up saying, you know what, they wiped out my village. I want revenge. God's going to have to forgive me. Why do you think the Angolan army is so strong? Their army grew up fighting war for like 25 years against Savimbi. Everybody's afraid of the Angolans. But we trained that army. So what does that say about our people? That's right. One day. Once again, you can share with our listening audience the event that's taking place this Saturday, November 22. The Congolese Genocide Memorial, November 22, November 22nd, 12 to 2 p.m., Christ Citadel International Church Hall, 1122 South La, La Tienega Boulevard, uh, north of Pico in Los Angeles. Uh, the planning committee of Pastor Vincent Acosta, who's the pastor of, of uh, Christ Citadel International Church, Moine Mukenge and myself. We, you know, we have a, a tight program. We want everybody to come down and participate. There will be audience participation, audience involvement. We want to we educate you to our situation. We also want to educate you to the positiveness of Congo as it is and hope that you, when you leave, you'll have a better understanding and appreciation for our culture and a deeper appreciation for your culture that you belong tonight. I do definitely agree with you. The Congo, for all of the problems that have persisted, the Congo is literally one of the pearls on this planet. And uh, once peace, justice, and the rule of uh, righteous values are reestablished there in the Congo, we can look for great empires to once again develop from that part of the planet. And Brother Kitty will be broadcasting live from, from Kindu Menyema. I'm looking forward to that. You know it, you know it. Last, uh, lastly, if there's anybody in the listening audience who might want to get in contact with you directly, do you have an email or website that you can share with our listening audience? Yes, I do. My email is S as in Sam, K as in Kevin, D as in David, I, B as in Bob, I, N as in Nancy, G as in George, A at Hotmail.com. Okay, that's skdbinga yep. at hotmail.com. Hotmail.com. And, uh, Brother Saeed, I can't say just how grateful I am, not only for your having returned, this is your second appearance here at LIB Radio, but for having 
really livicated your entire life to such an incredible overstanding of your culture, your role in history, as well as a great understanding of other people's culture and how we can collectively weave that into the finest basket that this planet has ever known, a basket that can hold our golden future. Well, I want to say on behalf of our mayor, the Connolly's people at large, that, you know, you know, thank you for allowing us this venue to, you know, to talk about our country. It seems that a lot of people don't want to hear what's going on, but it's the second time you've allowed to do that. So thank you on behalf of everybody of Connolly's descent in our culture and the ancestors above who are listening on your show, because people didn't want us, the Connolly's, meeting your brothers like yourself here in America. But, you know, sometimes you just can't stop things from happening. So thank you on behalf of the community at large. Okay, very good. And um, lastly, before the uh, conference taking place this evening, I'll make sure, uh, if you need, we can get a uh, set of these CDs of the program in your hands. Ooh, you might be able to uh, take uh, to the uh, event and use that just as a little bit of fundraising. I, I appreciate the offer. It's much accepted, much accepted. Okay, I'll call you back a little bit later this evening. Well, thank you. Greetings to you, my brother. And uh, I don't know you. I don't know if you get a chance to tune in, but we're going to close out with some music from Zap My Mind. Oh, <laughs> from the album Afropecia. And here, here, let me ask you this because um, I may need to. The, the song I'm going to be playing is called Nambombeli Yo. Uh oh, sounds Lingala. <laughs> okay. It may be Lingala. I'm not too sure. <laughs> All right, and uh, so maybe somebody out there in the listening audience will help us translate. Thanks for being our guest this night. Thank, Thank you, you, brother. Say. Hotep African. Okay, another great program here on LIB Radio. This is our mission. This is why we're here, to shed light on incredibly sharp, razor-sharp minds like our brother who was our guest this evening, Saeed Kakese Dibinga. And uh, as long as we are producing these type of wonderful Africans, we can be assured our victories will keep coming forward. So keep your feet on the golden path. Keep moving forward. Keep your eyes on the horizon. Yes, that is victory you see. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.